turn to Hebrews 12. Anybody ever watch Survivor? I'm voting off Nikki tonight because she doesn't like me. You ever see that? That is one of the dumbest shows. George Will said today that reality television, where now we have the show about fear and people laying in a trough with rats because they're afraid of rats or falling off a building because they're afraid of falling off to make money. I think he's right. I don't think George will say, but I think he's right. I think we will reach the day where for money people will play Russian roulette on live television. Because once you've hit a peak emotionally and with a thrill, you got to go further or else it's boring. And we keep pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope. Well, I'll tell you something. If you want reality, you ought to read the 11th chapter of Hebrews. That's reality. People sawn in two because of their love for Jesus Christ. If you want reality, get a good look at what's going on in third world countries and around the world and Christians being persecuted for their faith. They're the survivors. The ones that are living life. The, the writer of Hebrews says, those of whom the world is not worthy. And I'm afraid the sad testimony for Christianity in America today is, is that anything and everything causes us to quit. And in the book of Hebrews, nothing could stop them. People get a little problem here and there, or they get a little anxiety about something, and they're ready to bail out on their faith and bail out on Jesus. These Hebrew Christians were undergoing severe persecution. But what he does is he takes them back and points them to the true survivors. Now, they didn't all survive in the fact that they all lived and overcame the persecution. Some of them died for their faith. But he was talking about those who survived their life because of faith. And he picks up in chapter 12 and he says, Therefore, in light of all these people, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now the backdrop of this, the mental backdrop, is the great Colosseum of Rome. The event that is being portrayed here is a long marathon race. And this cloud of witnesses they're, they're not our moms and dads that went before us. That's not what the writer of Hebrews has in mind. They're not people like D.L. Moody. Vance Havner's not in this great cloud of witnesses. What he is specifically referring to is to those who have been mentioned in chapter 11. 
Those people in that hall of fame of faith, that who's who of faith, those people are in the great cloud of witnesses. They are the reminders to us historically and biblically. They're the ones that remind us we are not alone in this struggle. We are not alone in this race. But if we're going to survive, we have to run this race by faith. Now, it is important that he goes to that therefore in chapter 12. Therefore, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Literally, that means, therefore, looking away unto Jesus. Don't get your eyes fixed on the great cloud of witnesses. I've heard preachers preach and say, you know, you know, we got a great cloud of witnesses watching us, and, and they're encouraging us on. That's good. But that won't be enough. In a time of pressure and persecution, that won't be enough. He says, you've got to even look away to them and look to Jesus. Look beyond the witnesses and look to the Word made flesh dwelling among us. They were our examples. They inspire us to never give up. When you look at that Hall of Fame of Faith, they were examples to us. We want to be like an Enoch. We want to be like a Abraham. We want to be like those people of faith. They're examples to us. But Jesus is our empowerment. They were examples, but Jesus empowers us to live the life that they gave us the example in living. And so there are three things that I want to suggest to you tonight if you're going to run the race, finish the course, and not quit. Number one, you need to be fit. You need to be fit. Uh, when we were at uh, the convention, uh, there was a fitness center on one of the floors, and, and I noticed a guy that I know going down to the fitness center one afternoon while we were going to supper. Hey, when you're in New Orleans, man, you know, forget fitness. Just go for gumbo and seafood and all kinds of stuff. You know, to ask God to forgive you later, but just, I mean, let's, let's be serious here. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, that guy's, that guy's, that guy's really good. He, he's he's going to work out. I'll pray for him as he goes. And sometimes the Christian life is referred to as a walk. But this metaphor of running is used in 1 Corinthians 9, in Galatians 2, and in 2 Timothy 2. And it's one of those great words about the Christian life. We are to run the race, and you have to be fit to run. He's telling us, don't loiter, don't linger, linger, don't hang around, don't lean up against a pole, don't quit, don't take a break. And he's telling us to run, not just to run, I mean, I see Christians just running everywhere, but to run with purpose and with intensity. It's not enough to just run. I mean, you can get up and say, I'm going to get busy for God. You may be busy doing the wrong things. He wants us to run with purpose and with intensity. There's a reason we're running as if we're in a competition. God understands and wants us to understand that, that we're in a race for life. And we're in this competition mode, and so he, he tells us to do what any good coach would tell us to do if we're going to run. The first thing he says is lay aside every encumbrance or every weight. It can also be translated every restriction or every impediment. Lay aside the weights, the restrictions, the impediments, anything that hinders you from running your race at full speed and to the maximum of your ability, 
lay it aside. Now, an encumbrance is not a sin. An encumbrance is not a sin. It is something that in and of itself for somebody else may not be a problem. But for you, it is one. When you think about an encumbrance, it may be so, you may look at somebody and say, well, how can they do that and be a Christian? Well, that's not an encumbrance for them. But it may be for you. An encumbrance is anything that for you personally hinders your walk, takes your eyes off Jesus, makes you lose your focus, makes you lose your love for Christ, makes you lose your tenacity and your passion in your walk for God, makes you settle for something less than God's best for you. That's an encumbrance. It's something that distracts you. There are some Christians that, that you know, there are just some things they can't do. And, and they say, I, I, I can't either go to that or I can't uh, be around those kind of people. Or I, I, I just can't do it because it pulls me down. That's an encumbrance. And it may be something that's not bad or evil. It just may be something that takes you down a notch in your faith. An encumbrance is anything that takes away your passion for God. It's something that would take away the Word of God and prayer as being a priority in your life. You know, if, if you read so much other stuff to the extent that you don't read the Word of God, then that other stuff may be good. It may even be Christian, but it can become an encumbrance to you because you're not spending time in the Word of God. Anything that distracts you, any friendship, any activity, any habit, any event, any place, any honor, any pleasure that keeps you or takes away your edge, which every runner knows you need an edge, anything that takes away your edge, you're supposed to lay it aside. Now, whatever hinders you, in the development of your faith, the writer says you need to lay that aside. Others maybe can do that, but you can't. You can't do it. Uh, Ronnie Floyd, who was uh, Steve's pastor, uh, spoke at a uh, luncheon that we went to on Tuesday, and he talked about second-mile ministry. And he made a statement there that, uh, I mean, just really, he made several statements. He talked about the second-mile minister, and he talked about the second-mile church. And he made a statement there that I could see guys all around the room cringing. He said, nobody who starts his day at 8 o'clock builds anything that's great for God. You've got to get an earlier start because the average guy in the world starts his day at 8 o'clock. And average doesn't build greatness. You've got to do more than other people do. Now, notice what he says we're to do with it. We're to lay it aside or to throw it off. It's like a runner who takes off everything that would slow him down. It, it literally reads the weight that hinders. The weight that hinders. Now, I, I used to, in some days when I was, before I learned that I, I didn't want to do this, I used to have some ankle weights. And I would, I would have ankle, and I'd strap them on my ankles, and I'd, walk, you know, just to make that, and, and then have, you know, a little barbell that you can hold when you walk. A little, you know, after a while, I decided I don't need that. Now, it was doing me good, but it was a weight. And I later decided if I was going to run in a race, if I was going to run a 100-yard dash, I would not put barbells in my hands, hand, even if they were only five pounds each, and weights around my ankle to slow me down. I would take everything I could off so that I could run as quickly without any hindrance. 
Then he says, not only are we to lay aside every encumbrance, but the sin which so easily entangles, or King James says, besets us. That means the sin that is just standing around, standing in the shadows. Now, there are two pictures here. The first picture is of a garment that wraps around you, and it would take you a while to get it off. The other picture is of a vine that grows. Think of kudzu. We're in the south. Of a vine that grows up a tree and eventually takes over that tree and squeezes the life out of that tree because it's not cut back. He says we are to do away with the sin which so easily entangles us, the sin that stands around waiting for an opportunity to get its grip in us. I've heard people say about this that that sin is whatever is your Achilles heel. And that is one way to interpret this. Whatever it is, that sin that causes you to stumble, that area where the devil knows that you're weak, and that's one way you can translate this. But the best way to translate this is in the context of the passage. And the sin that so easily besets us is the sin of unbelief. We just are afraid to believe God. We're afraid to trust God. We know that it may be true for everybody else, but it may not be true for me. We know that God's made those promises, but those promises may not apply to me. And so we get uptight and we get edgy, and this sin of unbelief begins to take over. And I, I want to tell you, the sin of unbelief is contagious. It's contagious. Just ask the children of Israel. It only took 10 people with the sin of unbelief to kill the whole movement of God in that nation. You know, it doesn't take many people in a church with the sin of unbelief to kill whatever a church is trying to do. All people have got to begin doing is start saying, well, I don't know if we can do that or not. I don't know if we can do it. Oh, I just don't know if we can do it. Oh, I don't know if God's going to come through. Oh, we may have pushed God too far on this one. I don't know if we can trust God this much. I don't know if we can believe God for this much. And he's saying in this context, you're running a great race. Others have run it before you. They have walked with me and listened to me and walked by faith, and I have come through for them. Now, fix your eyes on Jesus and don't get caught up in unbelief. Why? Because Jesus is the one that empowers you to do it. Jesus is the one that fulfills his promises. So if I'm going to be fit, I have to lay aside every encumbrance, those things that may not be bad for you but may be bad for me, and I have to do away and watch out for that sin which so easily entangles me, gets its grip around me. And unbelief is one of those. I want to tell you something. You have a bad day or a bad week physically, and unbelief can get its claws into you. Right? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you, you know, I want to tell you, you lay in a hospital bed for a few days, and unbelief will crawl in there with you. And say, so, oh, I don't know if God loves you. I don't think God loves you. If God loves you, he wouldn't let you be going through this. If God loves you, how could, how could a loving God allow this to happen in your life? How could a loving God allow this to happen in your family? And you begin to doubt. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And you and I are called to walk by faith, but it is easy to get out of shape spiritually when unbelief begins to enter in. Now, the second thing he says is we need to have fortitude. Run with endurance 
the race that is set before us. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, I may not be able to run your race, and you may not be able to run my race, but you can run your race and I can run my race. I may not be able to do what you have to do. I may not have what it takes to go through what you go through, but you do. You know, I, I, had, I, I spent most of the time at the Southern Baptist Convention ask, answering questions about Ron Dunn. And uh, we stopped and had prayer at the pastor's conference on Monday and had prayer. The president of the convention stopped and had prayer on Tuesday before his message, praying for Ron and for his ministry. And I had pastors coming up to me saying, I don't know why God would allow this. Well, you know what? I don't either. I don't know why the man was born blind. I don't really know why Jesus waited to do some of the things that he did. I don't know why he doesn't smite the heathen as quickly as I think he should. But you see, Ron and I were talking on the phone one day, and I said, Ron, what can I do for you? He said, well, you could ask God to give this to you. <laughs> and I said, Ron, I've got to be honest with you. I don't love God or you enough to ask for that. But I do know this. I have watched people go through times of suffering and times of hurt and times of pain, and I have seen them run the race when I have stepped back and thought, I'm not sure I could have done that. Why? Because when I run the race with endurance that is set before me, then God gives me the grace to go through whatever I have to go through to run the race set before me. God knows what you can endure. God says in His Word, He's not going to bring anything to your life that you can't deal with, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. God gives you grace in those moments. God gives you His strength in those moments. But it comes in proportion to our faith and running the race with faith. Now, in Hebrews 11, they've already run the race. They've endured it. But then he comes down and he says, run the race with endurance. Not only do we have a destination, not only do we have a purpose, but we do it with endurance. This is used several times in this latter part of Hebrews, this word endurance. You ought to go through and kind of check beginning in the last few chapters in Hebrews and, and see how often it's used. It does not mean to run the race gritting our teeth and saying, okay, all right, Lord, if this is the task you've got for me, I'm going to take it. But I tell you what, I don't like it at all. It doesn't mean to be grudging about it. It doesn't mean to be a defeated resignation. It doesn't mean uh, uh, just uh, fine. This is what's going to be. This is the way my life is going to be. Fine. I'll do it. But when I get to heaven, I got some questions. That's not what the word endurance means. It means to run with a sense of purpose because you know that God has the outcome determined on the other end. That you don't run without purpose, that you don't run without endurance because you know God's already settled it. I'm not running so that I can become victorious. I'm running because Jesus Christ in me has already made me victorious in the race that he's called me to run. I don't run for victory, I run from victory. 
not from it as in trying to get away from it, but from the victory that Christ gave me. Now, what is he trying to say to these believers? They're persecuted, they're under the gun, a lot of things are happening to them, but they've not yet, the persecution has not yet reached the point where people are being killed for their faith. They're just having the laws changed and things are beginning to happen and they're beginning to tighten the screws and the government is beginning to clamp down on them. By the way, there are a lot of similarities in the persecution going through in the first century church in Hebrews and the persecution that is beginning to build in America. A lot. If God withholds His coming, your children and your grandchildren may have to decide to give their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. America is not friendly to the things of God anymore. And the church is becoming so polluted, as in what happened in the Presbyterian church this past week, the church is becoming so polluted that God may very well, if He has not already, take his hand of protection off of us. So we're supposed to run, and when we run, we're supposed to run with endurance. Now, what does God want us to understand? Number one, it could be worse. Whatever you're going through, it could be worse. That's what he's telling us in verses 3 and 4. Have you ever started complaining about something, and all of a sudden somebody in the room has got more problems than you, and you wish you had never opened your mouth? You ever done that? I've done that. You know, I've walked into hospital rooms before, and I can remember when I was a youth minister, and I'd walk in and say, Hi, you know, and I walked into hospital rooms before, and, you know, and, and somebody's there to, you know, with an ingrown toenail. Oh, I don't know. They say it's going to hurt bad. Go to the next room, that person's got six weeks to live. Well, we're just trusting God just believing that God's got His best plan for us. You know, whatever we're going through, it could be worse. I want to tell you something. Whatever you go through, somebody else has got a bigger problem than you do. It's just always going to be true. Now, you got a bigger problem than somebody else. But we need to be careful that in running this race, we don't start whining and complaining about our problems because it could be worse. Listen to it from the message. In all this, in this all-out match against sin, others have suffered far worse than you. To say nothing of what Jesus went through, all the bloodshed. So don't feel sorry for yourselves. Jeremiah 12, 5. So Jeremiah, if you're worn out in this foot race with men, what makes you think you can run against horses? And if you can't keep your wits during times of calm, what's going to happen when troubles break loose like the Jordan in flood. Number two, if God didn't love you, He wouldn't discipline you. That's verses 5 through 10. Now, he's quoting there Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. And, and I want you to see a phrase there where he talks about our fathers disciplined us as it seemed best to them. As it seemed best to them. Now, your father, my father, there were times when my dad was too severe in his discipline. You know, he, he just, he, he got too severe. There were times when he was too lax. There were times when I knew I deserved a whooping, and I didn't get one. There were times when he showed 
harsh judgment, there were times when he showed great grace. But he disciplined based on what seemed best to him. But it was not perfect discipline. God's discipline of us, what God allows us to go through as his children, is what's best for us. It may not seem like it. It may not feel like it. But God disciplines his children according to what is best for them. He is never wrong in the extent and in the measuring out of his discipline. Now, we make mistakes because we're human. All of us make mistakes in, in exercising discipline because we're human, but God does not make those mistakes. And when God allows something to come in your path, it is for a reason, and God is disciplining you because you're his child. One of the things that you ought to ask somebody, if they are living a life of sin, not walking with God, and not undergoing any discipline from God, you need to ask them, do you really think you're a child of God? Because a child of God is going to be disciplined. God does not discipline illegitimate children. God disciplines his children. And so, if God didn't love you, he wouldn't discipline you. Number three, in the whole process of running the race, in a time of being persecuted and trying to keep your focus, you could miss the whole point of what God's trying to do with you. I mean, there have been some times when I look back in my life and I have missed the point of what God was trying to do with me. I, I thought I knew, but I was wrong. I missed the point because I did not get my focus and fix my eyes on Jesus. I just fixed my eyes on the problem. You remember in Mark chapter 11 when Jesus said to the disciples, you remember what happened there? They're walking by, and Jesus sees a fig tree, and it's supposed to, it's got leaves on it. It's supposed to have fruit if it has leaves, and it doesn't. So Jesus cursed the fig tree and said, there'll never be any more figs on this fig tree. And they come by the next day, and Simon Peter nudges Jesus and says, whoa, Lord, look, that fig tree's dead. Wow. And Jesus must have stood there. I mean, use your sanctified imagination and gone, I can't believe I called this idiot. And Jesus does not say, you know, I'm impressed. I didn't know. Boy, that's hot. Curse the fig tree. Jesus said, have faith in God. If you say to this mountain, be moved, then it'll be moved. Pray believing. What's he trying to tell us here? He's trying to tell us when you and I walk by faith, Get your eyes off the problems. Get your eyes off the persecution for these people. Get your eyes off the obstacles that are in your path and fix your focus on God. Don't focus on the mountain. The mountain will hide God from you. Fix your eyes on the Lord. Don't be, don't be worried about little things. Don't be worried about trying to get every little detail. Just get your focus on Jesus. When, when you face a problem, get on your knees and get on your face and get before God and try to see Him. And so there are three things I would say here. Don't be guilty, first of all, of a belittling spirit. Don't be guilty of a belittling spirit. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. You know, some people belittle what God's trying. Ah, that's just, that's just life. That's just the way life is. That's just the way things happen. That's the way, you know, lucky break, bad bounce. 
It's the, way, it's the way it goes. If you live that way, you will live forever shallow in your faith. What you have to do, not belittle, don't take lightly, don't belittle what God's trying to do. In every circumstance, say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Secondly, don't be guilty of an attitude of alarm. Don't be guilty of an attitude of alarm, nor faint when you are reproved. Have you ever met a Christian who goes, I, I, I just can't believe that God would, God would slap my hand and tell me that was wrong. I thought God loved me. I thought no matter what I did, God would say that's okay. God's unconditional love is not without requirements. That We walk within the boundaries of His love and the boundaries of His grace and the boundaries of His Word. Don't have a belittling spirit. Don't get shocked when things happen to you. Number three, don't be guilty of a bitter spirit. Verse 11, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness or a harvest of righteousness. We're going to talk about bitterness again in just a moment. Let's go to number three. You need to have focus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now this is interesting that the writer of Hebrews says it this way. He doesn't say fixing our eyes on God. He doesn't say fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. He doesn't say fixing our eyes on the Lord. He simply leaves it at fixing our eyes on Jesus. What is he saying when he just says that? He's saying, look at how Jesus dealt with persecution and with problems when he walked this earth. He's not saying just look at Jesus who's already overcome death and hell and the grave. He's talking about looking at Jesus who walked this earth and, earth and did not cave in. This is the only time this verb is used in Scripture, and it literally means looking away. Looking away to Jesus, to look away from everything else and deliberately look at Jesus, to look at His life. That's why God's given us the Gospels. You know, sometimes we, we get bored with the Gospels, and we say, well, you know, I've heard that story about Jesus before. But what do those stories teach us? They teach us how God in man can live a life to the glory of God on this earth. Not just when we get to heaven, but right here and right now in a sinful and dirty world. And so I want to give you four things here quickly. Number one, Jesus is the pioneer of faith. Chapter 12 and verse 2, he talks about the author Literally, it reads the pioneer, the one who forges the way, who leads a procession, who takes the precedence. Jesus is the very first one. It's the same word used in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 when Jesus blazed the trail for us. So Jesus is the pioneer. You say, well, I don't know how to walk this wall. Jesus is the pioneer. He blazed the way. Secondly, Jesus is faith's perfecter. Faith's perfecter. He made faith perfect. He made it complete. His life was the very embodiment of faith. Thirdly, Jesus is faith's pattern. Verse 3, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. To grow weary and lose heart is to not finish the race, to just quit, to just fall out, to just run into the inside of the track and just say, that's it, who cares, I can't win, I'm not even going to place, so I'll just quit running. 
He says, don't grow weary and lose heart. How do I keep from doing that? Consider him who has endured such hostility. And so there's a, there's a being absorbed with Jesus here that is both negative and positive. The negative is laying aside. The positive is fixing your eyes. Laying aside the encumbrances. That's laying aside those negative things that hold you down. The positive is you get your eyes fixed on Jesus when these problems are coming and you focus on him. Number four, faith in Jesus makes us adequate for every situation. Faith in Jesus makes us adequate for every situation. Now, there are two things here. First of all, verse 12, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. We need a correct attitude. We need a correct attitude. You see, when I'm running my race the way Jesus wants me to run it, then when I see somebody else stumbling along the way, I can come along with a right attitude and say, hey, we're going to make this and we can do this together. I'm going to come alongside them. I'm going to run with them. I'm going to help them. I'm going to say, look, Jesus is there. He's our focus. He's our target. Let's just keep running. Let's keep going. Don't quit now. It gives us a correct attitude when we believe that Jesus makes us adequate for every situation. But not only that, we need a right spirit. Verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Two things that will cause a Christian to come short of the grace of God. One is bitterness bitterness. Far too many believers have become bitter about their circumstances. Something in their family, something in their health, something in their finances, and they become bitter and they become negative and they become complaining, always wearing a chip on their shoulder. I want to tell you something, folks. Bitterness will kill you. It will kill you. It will kill your faith it will kill your hope. It will kill your witness. If you have something going on in your life or something that's happened in your life in the past and you're bitter about it, I want to encourage you, dig that root out and get rid of it because it will destroy you. Somewhere along the line, you just got to lay it to the side. I have a spot on a mountain in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And I went there one week and I was mad and I was bitter. And I was angry and I didn't want to talk to God. I didn't want to hear from God. I didn't want to, I, I just, I wasn't interested in God speaking to me. I wanted to tell God a few things, but I wasn't interested in God telling me anything. Well, that lasted a couple of days. And then finally I decided, you know, maybe the Lord might want to say something to me. So I was laying on a couch and looking out a window at the mountain. And I realized that something little had become like a mountain in my life. And I wasn't getting over it. And I wasn't moving past it. And I was letting it dominate my mind and my thoughts and my feelings and my emotions. And it was affecting me. It was affecting everybody around me. 
So I can, till, I can still take you to the place. I put all that in a mental garbage bag and I wrapped it up real tight. And when I drove off that mountain on Friday, I rolled down my window and I dropped the bag and I left it there. I said, Lord, I'm not going to care. I don't have room in my car. My wife's been to the antique mall. I don't have room for this baggage. So I've got to leave something here. And I opened up the window, and I didn't have a real garbage bag, and I didn't have any. I just mentally, I just said, Lord, I, I'm leaving it, and I'm not coming back for it. And I dropped it, and I let it go. You know what some of us need to do? We need to take the stuff where somebody hurt us or somebody said something about us or somebody did something to us and, you know, uh, somebody didn't treat us like we wanted them to treat us or somebody acted in a way or some problem where we think God didn't answer the way we wanted him to answer or, or some issue in our life or some setback in our life. And we need to take that and say, Lord, I've just let that build up until I'm just bitter at you and, and it affects everything and everybody and everything I touch. And I'm just going to let it go. You see, if I don't let it go, I come short of the grace of God. Because God's grace can't work where there's a wall built up. The wall has to come down. You say, well, you don't know what they did to me. Well, they didn't put you on a cross, did they? They didn't nail your hands to a cross, and nail your feet to a cross, and put a crown of thorns on your head and spit on you. They didn't do that, did they? I didn't think so. And by the way, if they did, you'd have deserved it because there's some sin we've committed somewhere in our lives that makes us guilty. But they took the sinless Son of God and nailed Him to the cross, not for His sins, not because He had done anything wrong, but because He walked a life of faith. And they nailed Him to a cross. And so He says, now, before you go getting bitter, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. You may have some problems and you may have some adversity and you may have some things that haven't gone your way, but let's remember what they did to Jesus. Does anybody here think Jesus deserved that? No. So we can let go of whatever makes us bitter. Secondly, not only bitterness, but superficiality. Or to put it another way, taking the things of God lightly. Now, he refers to this in verses 16 and 17 when he talks about Esau. You remember Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of oatmeal. Must have been good oatmeal. He was flipping about the things of God. If you read verses 16 and 17, he was flipping about the things of God. The promises of God meant nothing to Esau, but the key to those two verses is when he tried to get his father to change his mind, it was too late. When he tried to get his father to change his mind, Lord, uh, Lord, I, I want my dad to reverse his decision. Give it back to me. Let's have a do-over. It was too late. Esau had been so superficial about his relationship with God and treated God on such a superficial level that when he tried to make things right, it was too late to make them right. And that can happen for the believer. 
He says, you know, one day I'm going to get that straight. One day I'm going to get that right. One day I'm going to ask for forgiveness. One day I'm going to go to that person and talk to them. One day I'm going to do this. One day I'm going to do that. One day I'm going to take that to the altar and I'm going to leave it there. And one day and one day and one day starts building up and years and years and years later, before you know it, who cares? You just become flippant about it. Keep short accounts. Because when you carry sin around, you carry a lot of baggage that keeps you from running your race. Keep short accounts because it's not worth it. Keep short accounts because you've got a race to run that only you can run and you don't have time to be pulling over and dealing with things that you needed to lay aside a long time ago. Keep short accounts so that when doubt sits on your shoulder, faith can say, no, I've watched God be true to me over and over and over again. He won't change now. Thank you for joining us for Path to Truth. If you would like a copy of today's service, please send us your name and address to Path to Truth. 